If there's anyone Aaron and Eli have interviewed on the designbetter.co podcast so far that really embodies the product-driven concept, it's probably Laura Martini. Not only does Martini have a background in both design and engineering, but she also has a keen product sense and really understands the business factors behind good design decisions. Martini has had a really interesting career too, from working as a researcher in John Maeda's Media Lab at MIT, to leading the design team at MedTech startup Council, to her current role as senior interaction designer working on Google's analytics platform. In this episode, Erin and Eli chat with Martini about how her engineering and design backgrounds complement each other, how a company's values shape her work, and how design leaders can help individual contributors grow. Enjoy this conversation with Laura Martini, and thanks for listening. As a Design Better listener, we think you'll enjoy Tools and Weapons. It's a podcast hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Brad's conversations with leaders at the intersection of the promise and perils of the digital age touch on some fascinating topics, like the new AI economy and how AI is becoming a tool in the battle against hunger. On a recent episode, Brad was taken to Venice, Italy, where he connected with Eve Ubelmanhoff of Iconum. It's a startup that specializes in 3D digitization of endangered cultural heritage sites. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone capture photography and some powerful AI tools to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. How cool is that? On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, you should subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith, wherever finer podcasts are served. Laura Martini, Senior Interaction Designer at Google and frequent Envision contributor. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. And uh, we've we've had a long relationship with you, with our team. Going back over a year ago when we started designbetter.co, you graciously accepted our invite to be interviewed. And um, back at the time, I think you were just moving into a startup called MetaSAS, and now you're at Google. And uh, we'd love to hear that story a little bit, like about what, what brought you over to Google and, and what are you working on now? Yeah. So I have spent about five years working in health tech startups, really enjoyed the space, like the challenges. And... After a while, I was starting to feel ready to be part of a design team at a bigger company. Uh, There are certain challenges that come with being one of the first designers or the first designer at a startup. And I was really interested to see what it was like to be in-house somewhere and and part of a much larger team working on a product that millions of people used and decided a lot of the healthcare work I was doing was all around data and how do you visualize that and and make it easy for people to navigate and was really interested to try uh, something like Google Analytics where I am now where it's taking those sorts of data visualization problems and then just scaling them up in terms of complexity and and size of your user base. So that's how I ended up here. So you've had a number of different professional experiences being early on at startups um, leading design teams, um, working directly with engineering, and now moving into a really large organization 
um, where, you know, there's, there's a very strong engineering culture, but also, you know, a, a strong design culture as well. Can you talk about how it uh, feels different as a designer to operate at uh, these different types of companies? Yeah, you know, it's funny, the day to day, regardless of where you are, I think, as a designer, you're always having to be an ambassador for your process and how you approach problems. I think the biggest change I've felt is just having the support of a much larger design organization, and having, say, a manager who also knows what it means to be a a product designer or an interaction designer, and who can coach me a little bit more on, on the craft side. And that's been really a, a kind of an interesting change just to be part of, I'd say to have the emotional support and uh, the sort of professional support of a much larger design organization. Uh, another aspect that's really different is when you're at a startup, you're literally starting from scratch. You're coming up with the visual design, you're coming up with all of your processes around research and that's been a big change from coming to a larger organization where you've got the support of, say, researchers to help you talk to your customers, or you have you know whole teams dedicated to things like material design and coming up with the actual visual style guides. So you as an interaction or a product designer can really focus on the product and the strategy side and not things like, say, at a smaller startup where you're doing literally everything from the t-shirts to the emails you send to clients to the logos. Uh, it's, it's been kind of nice to be able to focus on the parts of the design process that I really get a lot of energy from. So we also, we talked to uh, Irene Au, who was uh, pretty early on, on Google's design teams back in 2006 and design was still very nascent and not maybe fully embraced by the company culture there. And and in the intervening years, things have, have changed a lot. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about what, what the design team structure looks like now at Google. Yeah. So I can speak to sort of my immediate group. And there are researchers. We've got people who specialize in the visual design and coming up with the patterns that we use. We've got people who help with prototyping, and then we've got interaction designers. So it's a much more specialized set of of design people than I was working with at a startup where we all had to wear many hats. One of the things that I've been really impressed at with Google is the embrace of design at the executive level. I think regardless of the size company you're at, there really has to be buy-in at the VP or the C-level And I actually was really interested in joining this particular group because of a VP of design, Catherine Courage, who has a history of working on really impactful products at Citrix and DocuSign. And to me, that was really a signal that design is taken seriously as a true partner to engineering and and product and not just as a, a service in terms of executing on somebody else's vision. So you, you're working on Google Analytics. It's a massive application. It's got a long storied history. Um, I know I've been a Google Analytics user since you know day one, and it's it's changed and evolved, and um, you know to to meet the needs of a very broad customer base. So can you talk a bit about uh, the relationship of design and engineering working on this this big project? Yeah. So I think. 
in just in general, when you're working on a bigger product at a bigger company, and, and this was true when I was at Apple, it was you know it's been true here at Google. The bigger the team, I think the more thoughtful you have to be in terms of laying out why you're making certain recommendations. You need to be, I think, more on top of your timelines and communicating to people when you're blocked on something that you need from them or or when you may be behind schedule that might impact their ability to code up and launch on time. So I think larger teams definitely require designers to have a lot of skills beyond just the actual execution skills. I've seen that you really need to be able to document well, to go to, go to meetings and communicate well, listen well, and essentially be a team player. And that's something that I think a lot of designers really struggle with. Um, as we talk to a lot of different designers in different companies, we, uh, you know, we hear common stories that people feel comfortable and excited about the craft of design, but the diplomacy of design, the, um, you know, the, the statecraft of design is something that doesn't necessarily come easy to uh, designers. So I'm curious, are there you know, just some practical recommendations that you could share with our listeners for how they can help see their designs through and be more successful by, you know, to, to use your phrase, being a, a team player. Yeah, I think at every size of company, the more you can communicate or even over communicate what you're doing, why you're doing it. And essentially be willing to listen to other people's opinions on design, even if you don't necessarily think that they're qualified to weigh in. I think just having that open-mindedness in terms of going to your engineers and saying, hey, here's what I'm thinking, what's possible to build? And sort of starting those discussions really early and coming to them with ideas and just hand sketches and bringing them into the process as opposed to waiting until you've got really pixel-perfect high fidelity mocks that other people don't necessarily feel as involved in the process that you use to get there. I think, I'm just trying to think what other strategies work. You know, when you're at a really small company, just maybe sending out an email every time you go out in the field and talk to customers and saying, hey, here's a few things that came up that were really interesting that might be useful uh, to other people as they're building things. At a bigger company, you may have a larger team newsletter that goes out once a month that's a little more formal. But that's something that you can do at really any size company. Um, You know, as designers who go out and talk to customers, you can take pictures, assuming that your users allow for it and maybe, or, you know, take sketches of, of the environments that they're in and share those back with the team to help them develop empathy so that it's not just you as the designer owning that relationship with the customers, but it's you as the designer facilitating knowledge throughout the company. So that's one way I've seen design be successful is communicating customer needs on a bigger scale. Uh, other just really tactical things, I think being able to hit deadlines and being able to communicate when you're going to miss a deadline or when you're behind and you need help from somebody, I think those are really basic skills that honestly, if you can just be good about being a partner with engineering and with product and have them trust that you will deliver things on time and that you're going to communicate with them and you're not just going to 
go away and disappear for a week and come back or not come back. I think that goes a long way towards developing those relationships and building trust. Um, And then finally, I've found that even though it can be really nice to just put on a pair of headphones and listen to some music and, and make prototypes, it's often a lot faster and a lot more productive to just sit down with an engineer or a product manager, or if you don't work in the same building with them, jumping on some sort of video conference and just in real time, having them watch as you design and sort of going back and forth and trying out ideas, I think I found that that's a lot faster. And then once you get past some of the initial phases, then it's a lot easier to go away and come up with the higher fidelity designs. But um, just that process of sort of being partners with and not a service to these other organizations, I think goes a long way towards them respecting what design does and seeing that you can help get to answers. They don't just need to send you a list of, of requirements that you can really be part of that conversation and developing the product. So I wanted to ask about some aspects of that. So we, um, we share this uh, background in, in mechanical engineering and product design and then moving over to software design. Do you feel that the, that engineering background, even though it's a different discipline, helps you with empathy towards engineers in your interactions or in in other ways? I do. I think that being able to empathize a little bit with what it's like to be an engineer and to understand that technical constraints really are a valid reason not to do something design-wise, I think that goes a long way in a conversation with engineers to say, okay, I get it. This is difficult, but how do we work around that? Or how do we kind of creatively solve these problems together? Um, There's that aspect. There's honestly some of just the empathy of understanding what it's like when you're the last person in the chain where engineers are essentially the ones on the hook to ship something on time. And so if everyone before them misses their deadlines and pushes back, all of a sudden they have half as much time as they really allotted uh, to build something. And that can be a huge problem. And so I think just having some of that empathy of what it's like to be in that role gives me a sense of, okay, what do I need to do as a designer to make their lives easier, to lay out problems in a way that makes it easier for them to build the right solution. And uh, it also makes me, I think, just more fearless in terms of digging in on the technical constraints. I think sometimes designers in really complicated products, it's, it's tempting just to say, hey, send me a list of exactly what features need to be in here, PM. I'll take it from here and I'll make a visual. But often you don't know the right content of a web page or a product until you start to design it. And it really needs to be an iterative process back and forth of, okay, you know, what are these APIs sending us? What is the actual data we're going to get in? Okay, PM, you've spec'd out one particular way you want this displayed, but let's actually think through what that means based on how frequently we're getting the data or how that data will be formatted. And I think if you as a designer are willing to engage at that deeper technical level, the designs will ultimately be better. And that's true of working at, I think, any company, anytime you're working with engineers, the more fearless you can be about trying to understand what they're working with, the better your product will be. Research has always been a really important part of your process as as a designer. And that fact... That is, uh, if I remember correctly, how we stumbled upon your work. You, you wrote a really great piece on Medium about design research. And uh, I believe the title was, So Your Boss Doesn't Believe in Design Research. 
Um, which, you know, I, I had to chuckle when I saw that headline because, uh, I've certainly heard that from so many people over the years, uh, lots of different types of companies. Um, do you have recommendations for, uh, how, uh, those you know, like designers that are trying to make their best work, they're trying to be empathetic with their customer base, but they don't necessarily have the internal support for doing the research to understand the problem thoroughly. How can they do that and, um, and perhaps bring others to uh, have a better understanding of the value of research? Research is really one of those hot button issues for designers. I think the term itself can sometimes make engineers and product people and, and honestly anyone else at the company think of just really slow processes that are going to keep you from shipping a product on time. And so I think step number one is not to frame it as you as a designer doing research, but really frame it as you as a designer helping to frame it in terms of answering questions that are important to the company and do some research internally first before you go out in the field. So understand what do other people care about? You know, what um, in their day-to-day what do the business people care about? What do the product managers care about? What do the engineers care about? And frame the work that you're doing in terms of helping them. So if product managers care about successful uh, uptake of a product, you know, if they care about like the CSAT score or other customer success metrics, understand, you know, show how the work you're doing will ultimately lead to their job being easier and help them, you know, move faster as they're building product, as they're specking it out. Uh, frame yourself as an internal partner to them, I think, first, versus just saying, hey, I'm the person who knows the customer. You need to listen to what I'm saying. Because I think sometimes as designers, we can get a little too attached to user needs and see ourselves as really the ambassadors just for the people using the product. But we also, I think, need to see ourselves as people who are supporting the business. And I I don't mean that to say our only job is to help a business grow, but I think it can be naive to think that all that people care about is helping the user. Uh, I think you really need to show how helping the user then channels back into helping the bottom line. And that then makes people much more receptive. Um, so if I had to boil it down, essentially speak the language of the decision makers at your company and getting buy-in from other people will help you to get resources. That being said, sometimes it can be really hard to get buy-in until you've shown what research actually means. I think a lot of non-designers just don't know. And so I've had some success bringing in interns in companies and having them do a three-month stint and then showing, hey, look, this one person in three months was able to uncover all of these different insights. Here's how this helped the product. Here's how this sped things up or helped us decide which things to focus on. And then I think once you have an intern, that can sort of be a proof of concept and then help you make the case for a full-time headcount. You've talked before and you're writing about making some of your research quantitative in addition to the qualitative research. Could you talk a little bit about that? So I think often when designers think about research, they focus on the qualitative side, right? Which is going out, talking to people, coming back with insights, maybe putting some post-its up on a wall and doing affinity diagrams, things like that. 
There's also another kind of research that I think designers need to be comfortable with as well, and that's quantitative research, right? So being able to dig in on the metrics for your website or dig in on the actual way people are interacting with your product and not being afraid to go dig into the databases and kind of getting a sense of the magnitude of problems. I think sometimes where qualitative data fails is, yeah, you talk to a few people and they may have a particular pain point. But when you go and talk to engineers and PMs, they're going to want to know about the scale of the problem. And if you don't have numbers to back that up, that can be really hard sometimes to justify why it's a problem worth solving. And so I think the more you can get comfortable with understanding data tools, the more you can start to steer the the product discussions at your company. Support for Design Better comes from our friends at CrashPlan. Visit CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. From my daughter's first birthday to my son's first soccer game, if you're like me, you have thousands of precious family photos that only exist in digital form. That's why I've been using CrashPlan for a decade and a half now to back up all my important files. CrashPlan works efficiently in the background while you work, encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud server every 15 minutes. And they make it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, CrashPlan can also be your ultimate rewind button. Businesses of all sizes benefit from CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities, buy as many user licenses as you need, and easily manage them all under one account. Go to CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. That's CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter, all one word, for 50% off your first year. Back up better with CrashPlan. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience, and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit betterhelp.com slash designbetter today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash designbetter. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, 
and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. You've been at a lot of different types of companies, uh, from startup to enterprise size and, and places in between. So you've seen a lot of different conditions where design um, and just you know product development in general, it either thrives or it really dies. Could you talk a bit about the trends just in general, your observation from your personal experience and maybe observations about the industry as well? What, what conditions kill a product? I think the biggest issue I've seen in companies is when you've got people who essentially aren't team players and they have an idea and they just really want to see it through, regardless of what anyone else cares about or thinks about. And and they maybe aren't asked to justify their decisions. It's sort of, I think this is more something I've seen in the startup world where you have people just take an idea and run with it. And that can be a really dangerous place to be uh, where it's essentially about the, the, the idea is too tied to one person and their ego versus being a team effort that other people can really contribute to and help steer. I think that's great. I mean, we've, we've noticed the same things that, um, you know, especially as a company grows, there's just a lot of people involved and, um, people who figure out how to work well together, who can be a team player, they tend to succeed. Um, and communication skills are really critical to succeeding, especially at scale in, in big companies. Um, there just aren't too many positions in, in large companies where you can be absolutely isolated and, and not really collaborate with other people. Um, and people who can't develop those communication skills and, you know, give in, have, have a sense of humility and, um, you know, give other people the opportunity to shine. If they can't offer that to others, they tend to get deselected from the organization. I think that's fair. Or they just don't advance, right? If you look at, in general, job ladders, right? So what it means to be a junior designer versus a senior designer. Once you get past some of the entry levels, a lot of what's involved is figuring out how to communicate your ideas, how to listen, how to work well with other people. And it has nothing to do with how well you move the pixels around necessarily, unless you know maybe you're in a very, very specialized job track. Laura, how do um, company company values shape the way that you work? You know, before you were working at some smaller medical companies, and now with Google, they have this very broad mission of organizing the world's information. How does that how does that shape your work? I think regardless of where you're at, whether it's a small company, a big company, a company that you absolutely love, or a job that maybe you just took because it was the best option you had. I think there's a way to connect to your work. So, you know, in the past, I've worked at a company that worked in DNA testing. And for me, that was really meaningful personally because I had a, a family situation. My sister had a genetic disorder that she passed away from. And to me, getting to work on products that helped other people and helped them avoid the same types of, of fates, that was really meaningful. 
But there's a lot of other ways that I found meaning in my work too. I think some of them are just personal, personal growth, right? The people you get to work with, the skills you get to learn. That to me can be a really valuable thing to get from a job. There's also the idea of scale. Maybe you're working on something that doesn't directly say save lives like a healthcare company, but it helps millions of people in their day-to-day work. That's also really meaningful. And so I think it's all about figuring out what are you excited about? What's important to you? What's important to you right now? I think that can evolve over time. And then figuring out how can you get enough of that from your job that you can really connect with your work and be inspired to come in every day. Laura, we keep hearing this common theme as we talk to people who have been in the industry for a while that um, it's a it's a very fast paced industry, the software industry. And there's always a lot of projects going on. And, um, you know, we sprint to build a big thing. We ship it. We get about a day to, to rest and then we we sprint again on another big project. I wonder if uh, from your perspective, uh how you strike a balance of, you know, being inspired um, to throw yourself into your work, being very excited about the value that you're creating for other people, um, and also getting a balance where, you know, you get what you need, the batteries are, are being recharged so you can come back and um, ready to give your best efforts again. Yeah, I think it's a huge problem as a designer, right? Because you love what you do. And I think a lot of people get into the field because they do feel really passionate about the type of work. And it can be really easy to find yourself pulling really long days for weeks and months on end. I think being really diligent about taking vacation is important, or even just taking walks, right? Figuring out what's a lunch spot that's a little bit further than you would normally walk, but maybe gives you a chance to just get outside, stare at something that's not a computer, and just take a break. You know, you go walk around, listen to a podcast, say, and just clear your head. Uh, I don't think it has to be huge breaks all the time, although real vacations and not just long weekends, but say getting away to the beach or some exciting adventure for a couple of weeks, I think can really be helpful. Uh, as designers, it's really important that we get outside of our own bubbles and our own day-to-day routines and, and see the rest of the world. If you want to design for people who aren't yourself, the more you can actually get out and travel and explore, I think the better. But also, you know, if that's not possible for you or that's not enough, I think just having boundaries on your time and saying to engineers, okay, you want A and you want B. I only have time for one of them. If you had to prioritize, which one would you choose? And often I find that people can, if you set personal boundaries and just make it clear, hey, I want to do a really good job. So I'm not going to do a half-hearted job on these two things. I'm going to do a really good job on one of them. Let's figure out how to prioritize. I think people tend to be pretty receptive to that. I've found that when people do that when they can draw a boundary and communicate that, you know, very clearly, it tends to generate respect too. that people understand where your priorities are. You want to do your best work. Um, and you're also not going to let, you don't want to let people down. You don't want to overpromise and underdeliver. So it tends to help develop relationships. That's a really good point. I think as designers, we tend to be so passionate about the work and, at least for me, you know, I'm a people pleaser, right? I want to make other people happy. And it can be hard sometimes to say to them, 
hey, you're asking for this thing and either I don't think it's the right thing to build, so I think our time would be better spent somewhere else, or to just push back and say, I don't have time or your deadline isn't reasonable. But I think there's ways that you can do it that, like you said, they they generate respect and they end up making all parties feel better, right? You can push back and say, I think that these are great ideas. Let's pick one or two to focus on. Or maybe we can do a little bit of research up front to validate which of these different directions are the most important. We can agree on a team what to focus on and then really do a good job on these fewer pieces versus trying to tackle all of them and coming up with very mediocre products. So as we mentioned kind of towards the beginning of the show, um, you know, we, we met you, we were first kind of transitioning into MetaSAS and then, and then into Google, and you've been with a few other smaller startups before that. How do you know when it's time to move on and, you know, when you've kind of reached the peak of your, your experience at a given company, are there certain things that you look out for that, 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 you, that you know that it's time to, to maybe make a move? I think ultimately for me, it comes down to am I excited to wake up and go into work every day? And what am am I learning at my current job? And do I feel like there's room for me to grow? And as soon as it starts to be, I'm in that place where I just dread my morning commute or I come into work and it's just, I'm not excited. Uh, For me, honestly, what I find is as soon as I stop fighting back in terms of I, you know, somebody asked me to do something and I don't want to really engage with them and push back and question. That's usually a sign that I'm, I have some apathy towards what I'm doing and that maybe it's time to start moving on. And when I'm at a place where I'm really engaged, I find myself really wanting to dig in on problems and really questioning and saying, you know, this is an interesting idea, but have we thought about these other things? What, you know, how do we know this is the right thing to build? And as soon as I stop having the energy to engage in those discussions, that's usually a sign that I should go find something else to be working on. I think there's, there's an interesting point in here about, you know, reflecting on whether or not you're growing and whether or not your, your, your needs are being met in your current position. And this is one of the challenges that design leaders face, right? That, um, whenever we've talked to designers or we've mentored designers over the years, uh, we ask, what are they looking for in this ideal job? And they don't say, I want better healthcare or I want to be paid better. Uh, they almost always say the same thing, which is I want to be in a place where I can grow, where I can learn, I can be pushed in a new direction. And it sounds like uh, that was a key pull for you in joining Google that, you know, smart people um, were there that were going to challenge you and inspire you to do your best work. As a design leader, uh, you've, you've led design teams in the past. What what sort of advice can you give to others that um, can help their design teams be challenged and continue to grow? So you're absolutely right. For me, this last step to move into a bigger company was about having other designers that I could learn from. But I think you can have a lot of the same things that big companies offer, even if you only have a really small team and, and maybe no budget. There's things you can do like book clubs or you know, weekly meetings where you discuss articles on design and get people really thinking more deeply about the craft and the industry. 
There's things like just attending local events, meetups, things that are either free or really inexpensive. If you can get a budget, I think it's really meaningful to allow designers to travel to conferences. And it's not just about the conference. I think it's showing that the company really invests in designers and their development. But if you don't have a budget, you can also do things like, you know, we had a designer on one of my teams and she led, a, a wasn't exactly a book club. We would choose an online course and we would all do it together. And it wasn't necessarily design related or craft related. Some of it was around leadership skills or data skills. And, you know, you can pull your team, figure out what are skills that people want that maybe stretch them a little bit beyond what they've been exposed to in the past, and then carve out time for it. Make sure that people feel like the like you as a leader, and then, you know, make sure that the company is bought in to having some space for people to really learn and grow beyond just their day to day. Can you think of uh, any situation, uh, a leader that you've had in the past where you felt like, they uniquely inspired and kept you excited about your work? I can. You know, it's interesting. When I think back over some of my favorite bosses, there's one who stands out in my mind, and he was at Apple. And this is funny. I think one of my favorite things that he did was just acknowledge my contributions. And, you know, I've seen so many people just over the course of my work history where their bosses either don't acknowledge what they're doing or even in the worst cases, I think they steal credit. And there's nothing, I think, more demotivating for somebody than to have your boss just not appreciate you. And so that's something I've really intentionally tried to do as a manager and as a boss is give credit where it's due and highlight the contributions of my team and really advocate for them. And I think that inspires loyalty. It inspires people to feel really engaged in what they're doing and it makes them want to do more. It, when they see that you care, that you really value what they're doing, that really engages them in their work. You've done a lot of, of writing and we've mentioned a few of these pieces that you've written that really inspired us and, and we'll link to those in this, in this episode. What, what do you think that writing helps you with as a design leader and as, as a designer in general? You know, I just find writing to be a really good way to get thoughts out of my head. I think when you've worked with enough different people and you've been exposed to enough in the design world, you sometimes just have these pet peeves or these frustrations and you also have these learnings, right? These lessons and and you start to talk to other people and realize, oh my goodness, you know, I've dealt with these exact same issues at my company I don't know if I have the right answer, but I have some ideas of how we can troubleshoot this, right? So things like so many people deal with getting buy-in on design research and getting the bandwidth and, and the permission to do that. And I don't know if I have necessarily the right solution, but I've got some ideas. And if I can share those ideas and, and help other people maybe get unstuck from what they're trying to do, I kind of get a kick out of that. Um, I think... Being a designer, too, can be a little bit of a lonely situation sometimes, especially when you're in a really small company. And so feeling like you can put your ideas out there and engage in conversations with other people who are all across the world and 
have maybe different ideas or will question or push back, I think that's kind of fun. It gives you a chance to really be part of this broader community and feel maybe a little bit less alone and feel like your ideas aren't necessarily so crazy. Yeah, I don't know. There's, there's a lot I like about writing. Kind of gives you a chance too to reflect on what you've done and the bigger picture. We talked earlier about this emphasis on speed and this feeling like you're just constantly in this grind of moving from project to project. And there's something about writing that makes you pause and gives you a chance to really synthesize everything you've learned and, and maybe some of the broader themes that you've seen across products and really put those into a really succinct form that, that you can share with others and that you can reference back on yourself in, in the future and go, oh yeah, you know, I'd forgotten. These are great ideas. I'm facing the same problem at a new company that I faced at an old company. How might I troubleshoot that? So of all of the things that you've done in your career, what are you most proud of? Not that there's a particular product or thing that I can point to in terms of being a proud moment. I feel like it's the summation of all of the parts of my career that I'm proud of, right? It's the ability to just continue learning and growing and staying engaged and building my own network of designers and mentoring and supporting younger designers while also reaching out to more senior designers and learning and growing from them. So I feel like, you know, it's the whole, it's not the destination, it's the journey type approach. For me, it's, I'm just proud of how I've made my way in this field. That's honestly, it's a really complicated field, right? It's changing, it's growing. When I think about, you know, back in high school, when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, I'm not even sure UX design really existed. Maybe, maybe the adaptive paths of the world were out there just in kind of the nascent industry, but it's, it's sort of uncharted waters, right? I think for everyone in this industry, give yourself a pat on the back for, for just dealing with so much uncertainty, right? In terms of career paths and growth opportunities. It's, it's not like a traditional, you know, being a lawyer or a consultant or something where there's just a really clear, obvious way to succeed. I think you need to be adaptive, you need to continue learning, and you need to be okay with change. And I think that's hard. I think change is hard for everyone. And so I think I'm just proud of, of how I've navigated that and continued to grow and learn as a person. You're right. It is a, a pretty complicated industry and uh, change is our only constant, but uh, somehow you're navigating it very deftly. So Laura Martini of Google, we thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining us on the Design Better podcast. Thanks for having me. 